What does following Jesus have to do with being part of a church? What does following Jesus have to do with being part of a church? I said last week that that was a question posed to me by a good friend I hadn't caught up with for some time, and this was about a month ago, and I was asking questions of him, and he said, I asked him where his his current home church was, sort of post-COVID, and he's like, well, you know, what does following Jesus have to do with being part of a church? And so that question's been in the background as I've been thinking about this series, and we've changed our worship. Obviously, we're in two services now, and the number of people who really like that idea is on, like, one hand. Like, nobody, we don't like to be all together, but it was, you know, we, you know, but the nursery's so crowded, it's like we couldn't meet our protocols and all that kind of stuff. And so now we're at this, like, teenager stage of a, a little bit awkward size on both of them, and we'll get over it. But I wanted to step back and say, what, what is the nature of the church? We're thinking about the nature of worship. And that question was just ringing in my mind from my good friend because sort of the person on the street, if you ask them, or maybe the, the, the random follower of Jesus, Christian, if you ask them, churchgoer, why go to church? It might be something like this. Well, I go to church because it helps my personal spiritual life. You know, I, I, sometimes I like the teaching. Sometimes the music's inspiring. I get some wisdom for living when I agree with it. And uh, it's something for my kids to do, all this kind of stuff. Fine, that, that all may be true, that, 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 that may be true of the particular local expression of the church of which you're a part, that actually has nothing to do with what the scripture teaches about participation in a church. And so we're speaking, we're talking for three or four weeks on the nature of the church. Now, not New City Church, but the church of which New City is a very small, imperfect expression of that. Uh, and we see when we come to the scripture, the answer of why be part of a church is, why, is sort of caught up in the question of what is the church? What is the church? And last week from Hebrews 12, we saw that the church is the, we said, the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. Now, we talk about heaven, we don't mean somewhere out there in the clouds. We, it better, I think, to think of it as like almost a different dimension that's very real. Heaven is as real as Jesus is, right? He's resurrected in the body. We just had that in our confession. He's real. Heaven is a real thing. And the, the church is the earthly expression of the heavenly assembly of the firstborn. Last week, we saw this theme in Hebrews where it talks about the um, earthly things are shadows of heavenly things. So if you, heavenly things. So if you take the, your hand right now and put it above your bulletin, because of the lights above us, you will see a shadow, if you get close enough, like that approximates something that looks like your hand. So the shadow is a real thing, but not nearly as real as the hand that it's shadowing. A shadow doesn't have the vibrance that the real thing does. It's not as concrete, it's not as real, if you will, but it's a real thing. And we're saying the church on earth is the earthly expression, the shadow of the heavenly reality. It is real, but it's not perfect, and it's not complete, and it's not what it will be, and yet it is real. So why be part of a church? Well, it's the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. Okay? So, and I want to clean up one thing that I said this week, last week, or that I didn't say last week. And I was, I'm going I'm to round it out just a little bit. The answer to my friend, what does following Jesus have to do with being part of a church, in one, hand, in one sense is kind of like everything, actually. I was very hard on the fact that the, the, the Bible doesn't even envision a category of a person that is a follower of Christ and not part of a local assembly. There's no category for that person in the Scripture. 
Now, here's what I don't want you to hear me say. Here's what I don't want you to hear me say. Literally, okay, every single book in the New Testament of the epistles is written to churches. There were no individual Bibles, right? People didn't have individual Bibles. Most, there were, most were not literate. You, it would t- cost it a fortune. You didn't have individual Bibles until, oh, the, 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 the late 1600s, and it only cost two and a half weeks of wages, right? So that's a lot if you think about how much you make, but then you could get it. So they were, all this was to local churches. So it doesn't have a vision for a person who's an active follower of Jesus, not part of a local church. But here's, not, here's what I'm not saying. I don't want you to hear me say this. I'm not talking about New City. You don't have to be part of New City Church. Oh, my goodness. Or even our family of churches. In fact, if a church is saying something like, in order to really follow the Lord, you need to be part of our church, that's a good sign that you should run away because it's a cult, right? You, should, you shouldn't do that. You know, I read this passage last week about elders not being harsh and abusive in their leadership, and the reason that has to, warning has to be given is because elders can be harsh and abusive in their leadership, right? There's complete possibility. And I am at a disadvantage, I realize to some of you, it's probably an advantage. I've never had really a bad church experience. I've never had one. I was part of a church that I was, grew up around. It was a pretty healthy little country church, faithful people. Went to college, really good church. Went to seminaries, part of a good church. I was on staff at Christ Community Church in Carmel. That's a pretty good church. And now this is where it gets a little tricky because maybe I am part of a, you know, toxic church, but I'm the pastor, so I don't know these things. Um, but, so I've never had that, but I realize that there are actually those legitimate bad church experiences. So I, want, I totally want to make room for that. What I don't want somebody to say, hear me say is like, you must stay in experience like that. No, no, no. All I'm saying is we are built for the local church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been built, you've been created for loving community and loving leadership in the context of a local church that's following Jesus in humility, okay? So don't, I'm not making any room for a power play for like church leadership on things. Part of the reason really bad church experiences are so painful is because we really are made for good community. That's what we're created for and recreated in Christ. So yeah, I, felt that I had a couple questions after church last week from a couple different people. I think, I think I wasn't clear enough on that. And so, yeah, I'm, all I'm saying is we're made for it because it's the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. And this week we see why the church is also like what Jesus is building in this world. What Jesus is building in this world. I put in red at the top of your insert there, the church is the Jesus-built household of God. That word household is down in verse 19. Sort of the Jesus-built house or household of God. It's uniquely marked by Jesus, which I, I kind of pulled out by putting in bold in, your, in that text you have there. It's, it's created in Christ. It's united in Christ. It's growing in Christ. It's built in Christ. The very first home we ever bought, we, li- we, were, living in, we were serving a church in Carmel but could not afford a home there. So we bought a home at that time in Westfield, which is the suburb just north of Carmel. And it was a home we could afford, which meant it was the introductory level home that you could possibly get in the introductory level subdivision you could possibly find in the suburbs, which meant it was a piece of garbage. But it was brand new. It was built, it was built by a builder who had a reputation for building cheap homes, and they're no longer, no longer in business. But it was so pretty. Like, everything was white. It was so clean. It was only two years old when we bought it, and everything was just pristine. It even had white carpet in the kitchen. 
for a week. I dropped a pitcher of orange juice like week one. It was like, it's over. Orange juice on white carpet means it's gray forever, right? Um, so it was beautiful, but I promise you it was only skin deep. That house, the construction was terrible. You could even feel it flex when the wind blew a little bit. I do exaggerate from the pulpit sometimes. In the first service, I confirmed with my wife, who never exaggerates, and she said yes. That's how bad this house was. Terrible. But it's so pretty. So when we moved down here to the east side, we walked into our current home, and it did not have beauty, uh, cosmetic beauty on the surface. I'm going to just say that. It had the, the turquoise paint, and it had the peach paint, and it had the green carpet, and all this kind of stuff. And it was, quite frankly, kind of ugly. But our realtor at the time, an older guy named Dick Mullen, who was a second, gen, you know, second career realtor, for, he'd been an engineer, he'd worked in the wood business, he took us into the home and he said, Roger and Carmen, this is an ugly home, but it's very good. It's got good bones. It's what's called a justice-built home, built by the Justice Company, which is for years here, and he showed us how, like, the justice-built homes are known for everything, for the kind of wood they choose, the spacing on the floor joists, the type of drywall they use, the thickness of the, the concrete in the basement. Your home in Westfield was built to last two or three uh, decades. This home is built to last two or three centuries. Right? This is a good home. It's got good guts. It's strong all the way down. It's marked. It, has, it bears the marks of the builder. What we see in this passage is that Jesus builds the church. He is the builder of the church, not just for a couple decades or centuries, but for all time, and he brings people like you and me, unbelievably, into it. The church is the Jesus-built household of God. So we're going to look at Ephesians 2, first few verses. I even took some out. Those are just background. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before he talks about the church, he's like, y'all look around. You have all, if you're in Christ, have experienced a miracle. You were not sick. You were not hurting. You were not, you were dead. You were spiritually dead dead, that was your state, you were dead, and God, in his miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, made you alive together with Christ. You, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever seen a miracle, you actually are experiencing that right now by believing in Jesus. And the reason we often don't is because we undersell how dead we were. We think, well, Jesus needs to help us a little bit. We were dead, corpses, right? This is what this says. And now God's recreated you in Christ. He's raised you up with Jesus, united, to, united you to him spiritually, and has made you his workmanship, which often gets pointed out when people look at this text. That's the word poema in uh, Greek, from which we get poem. It's kind of cool. Like in the sense, it's like you and your uniqueness and your skills and your gifting, and your situational life, God is working in you. He's conforming you to the image of Jesus, but he's conforming this person to the image of Jesus, the same Jesus, yet it totally looks different. God is working something beautiful in you and through you. So as you look around, you are seeing people in whom God is working in very special and different ways than you. And this is an invitation, right? Or almost daring us to embrace this about ourselves. Wait, if I was dead... And now I'm alive with Christ. 
That means, that means anything is possible. Yes. It embr- and it dares us to embrace this about each other. To see and to call out and to encourage that workmanship of God in each other. Like, that's just what the church is. Okay, that's all background here. Verse 11. Context in the first century in all these places, the gospel is breaking out of the, the Jewish context, going to Gentile context. And uh, there's often conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And just for some more background, uh, from the Bible perspective, from the Old Testament, there's Jewish people and there's non-Jewish people. Right? In the non-Jewish people group, everybody else in the rest of the world will say, well, there's hundreds of people groups. But from the Bible's perspective, there's Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Most of you all's family background is from that second group, mine included. That means most of your all family background at some point was not running around the Middle East in this little sliver of land called Israel. You're from different places. You all, including myself, are Gentiles, right? So there's that background. So verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, quote, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's referring to something here that's ancient history to us, but was very important then, but it's the, the basis for what he's going to say. So I just want to just review, which we kind of saw in the baptism, God began working with Jewish people through the land of Abraham. Over time with Moses, that became culturally Jewish. So if you wanted to worship Yahweh, you really needed to become culturally Jewish in some way. Now, Gentiles could come in, but they needed to become culturally Jewish. Jesus comes and he blows all that up by fulfilling or abolishing those specific commands that created cultural Judaism, but not because they were bad, but because he fulfilled them. That's like a seminary course. I'm sorry, we're not just not talking about that. Um, But here we are, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, talking about Jews and Gentiles together, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. The church is built by an act of Jesus making peace with people who are alienated from God by the blood of the cross. That's why we say in the church, the first thing Jesus doesn't give, gives us is not a teaching. The first thing Jesus says to you is not, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to believe. Here's how you need to be. The first thing Jesus points to is what he did himself. He went to the cross creating reconciled reality that brings people into. That's why we say, sometimes, for every one look you take at your own sin, look outside yourself. Take ten looks at what Jesus has done for you. Christianity is not a a religion where you find hope in the inside. And we say, oh, the, we're, we're good enough and we, God can make us good enough to be acceptable. No, it's one that co- wholly looks outside of us to what Jesus has done first. And keeps looking outside over and over and over again. Verse 16. 
we are flying through this text, right? This is a, this is a deep, rich text. We're kind of only looking at the 5,000-foot view. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Last week we began to see that, especially in the letters of the, the, what's called the epistles, you have these word, this word you, which in English we almost always see it Y-O-U and think me. Right? So when we're reading this, all these U's in here are plural words. We say y'all, right, if you're from a little bit south. That's a corporate word, you all. So what do you do with that? Well, there, it, it's not that it's not about you, it's about us, but then we have to make corporate application of this to our life. Last night, there was a bonfire, which some of you attended. It was in the bulletin for weeks, and then we, we had a bonfire last night from 5 to whenever, I left early, uh, at Southeast Way Park. That was, a, that was a community event. There was a personal application of that needed, meaning you need to respond to it and go to it. Nobody would think that that was their personal bonfire. Like if I showed up last night and said, what are these people doing at my bonfire? You would say, he's an idiot. What's he saying? What's he thinking? That doesn't make any sense. But there's a necessary personal application to this fact that this is community bonfire. There's a necessary personal application when we see these things. Right? God has reconciled us. We need, that, therefore, to take responsibility and say, oh, I've been, I, I need to be reconciled to God, or I have been reconciled to God, and then that has implications for us in this community. So, um, and this is where it might get traction in our life, I think. The background is conflict between Jews and Gentiles and a need for reconciliation. We talk about reconciliation a lot in our culture today. But here's what I want us to be clear about. Here's where I want us to see what this text says clearly. It doesn't say you need to be reconciled with each other. It doesn't say you must be reconciled with each other. That the key is being reconciled with each other and loving each other. That's not what it says. What does it say? Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God. The center of gravity for those in the body of Christ is this. You have been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. That is and must be the primary reality of our lives before the other things in our lives, before political party, before uh, race, before affinity, before social class, whatever. It must be the center of gravity in our life. This is what God himself died for. This is the same argument made in Galatians, by the way. Back on there is a lot more hostility between Jews and, and Gentiles. And Paul's argument is, remember, you've both been justified. Not love each other. No, you've been justified by Jesus Christ. You're in the same family now. So you're in the same family. When 
being reconciled to God is the center of gravity of our life. If we are brought into the same family, then the call to be reconciled to each other is a foregone conclusion. Of course we must be reconciled to each other. We're part of the same family. Right? So if you think about it this way. If two kids are adopted from two different families into a third family, their adoption's complete, brought in, the parents don't say, well, now you two need to become siblings. Nope. They are siblings. It must be worked out. In the body of Christ, we have been reconciled to God. That means we, we must seek reconciliation, of course, but then it's empowered. And when being reconciled to God in our own soul is the most stunning thing in our life, it gets easier to reconcile with others. Why? Think about why you argue with others. Why do we argue with others? Here's why I, I argue with others. Because they're dumb. <laughs> clearly. I see it more clearly than they do. Of course. They just don't see it. They don't, they're not hearing me. Because if they heard me and understood me, they would agree with me. Right? You have this experience. Everybody has this experience. This is why we argue with people, right? It's amazing to me how I can, you know, in a like marriage counseling context, I can sit down with a couple and say, what's going on here? And it's like, you hear, you're like, I don't think you're married to, you're in the same marriage. Your explanation of the problems are complete. This is like you're married to two different people. Because we see things from our perspective. We're so smart. We're so right. We're so flawless. We see things. We, we're different reconciliation to God by the death of Jesus means we're not that different. Our brilliance and our genius leads us to death and hell apart from the reconciling work of God. Right? We are, all of our insight was dead. We need Jesus to do a miracle in our life because of our own sin. When we're stunned by the fact that Jesus has reconciled us to God, I think it's a lot more easy to be a little bit more humble and say, you know, I might be wrong here. <laughs> I might be being selfish. I might be being self-centered because there's a self-centeredness that looks like Jesus being on the cross on my behalf. Help me to hear. Help me to see. Help me to lay down my arrogance. Been reconciled to God. This is a body. So if you look around here, if you think about the body of Christ in the world, people in Christ have been reconciled to God by Jesus, you are in the same family. We are part of the same family. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. I don't really have a spot for this, but I do want to say, I just think it's cool. Um, he, Jesus, that's the he, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off. Contextually, that means Gentiles. And peace to those who were near, Jews. So there's both Jews and Gentiles in this congregation and in, in Ephesus. And Paul saying, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. What's a great, so awesome. None of those people heard Jesus preach. This was 30 years later and hundreds of miles away. What's he mean? When the gospel comes... And the speak, that is the speaking voice of God coming through into our life. If you remember the time where you moved from darkness to light, saw your sin, embraced Christ, you, th you, you know, in our experience, it's like, well, I'm making this decision, I'm seeing this. No, that is the speaking voice of God calling you from death to life. Maybe you grew up in the church and don't remember a time when you didn't believe in Jesus. That's because God's been speaking that reality to you your whole life. The speaking voice of God is in the gospel. That's what it means right there. So it's last, we see last week the... the the warning in Hebrews 12, 
Make sure you don't deny him who is speaking. God speaks through his word. This is the speaking voice of God. For through him, verse 18, we both, all of us, have access into, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So being fellow citizens is a big deal in Rome. If you know anything about Roman history, you could be a stranger, which meant you weren't a Roman citizen and had no rights. You could be an alien, which meant you weren't a Roman citizen but got some rights, like people take your trash, I guess, or whatever. Um, but the pinnacle was being a Roman citizen. And if you somehow were a Roman citizen, your name was enrolled in the Villa Publica at, in Rome, and you were on the rolls, and you received all the rights of, of a Roman citizen. So you're all the way in, but it doesn't stop there. You become members of the household of God. This is the work of Jesus on your behalf. You get to come all the way in as a son or a daughter. I used to tell people that I knew the, because I did, I knew the son of the lead singer of REO Speedwagon. REO Speedwagon? Anybody? Please, REO? I can't fight this feeling any longer. Come on. Come on, let's sing it. Just kidding. REO Speedwagon knew the lead singer's son. Nobody cares about REO. Nobody cares about REO Speedwagon. You know why? Because they're a def- defunct band. They weren't that great at the time. You know, maybe millions of downloads on Spotify, but who cares? I, what was the kid's name? I don't even remember. I knew him. I'd met him a couple times to talk to him at college, right? Why, why would I do that? I just, there's a little bit of glory in knowing somebody important or somebody who's connected to somebody important or even mildly important. It's so stupid, but, you know, we've all done it. Um, I was, oh, yeah, I, I, I know the, the son of the lead singer of REO Speedwagon. And people are like, who? Uh, it's just a little glory that I wanted to get, you know. It's kind of cool to say that. Um, what is in this room guys you, here are sons and daughters of the one who holds all things together by the word of his power what happens as we look at each other with those eyes believe that reality for ourselves not based on how we feel but based on something external, the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's something to delight in, to, to brag about even. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In the Old Testament, the temple, the stone building was the the thin spot, right? The place where earth and God touched in the Holy of Holies. And in the Old Testament prophets in the Psalms, there was this vision that when God returns, when the Messiah comes from that spot in the temple, he would renew the whole earth. But you can go to Jerusalem now and see that temple lying in partial ruins. Does that mean the plan is abandoned? No, it means it's moving forward. Why? I'm looking at part of the temple. This is the dwelling place of God in his people together, and then we make the personal application individually. This is what he's done. So if you, if you uh, Jesus uh, says in John 16, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. 
Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, he ascends to heaven, he sends the Spirit at Pentecost, and at that time there's a name change for the Holy Spirit. He becomes called the Spirit of Christ. So it is as if Christ is dwelling in us, Jesus is the true temple, you are the true temple, it's all moving. The plan is happening. It's going out from the earth. You are all not in Jerusalem right now. The temple's expanding. It's growing. How does it grow? Um... Oh, boy. I'm just going to skip a step by step. But just look at that. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone is very important because it was the stone from which the angular dimensions were taken for the entire structure. You want to align things with the, 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 uh, the cornerstone. When we were living in St. Louis several years ago during grad school, we learned about the St. Louis Arch. Some of you probably have been up in that. St. Louis Arch was completed in 1965. The base of the arch is uh, 630 feet apart. It's made of steel and stone. They build it, you know, going up, 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 curving, 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 curving. And then the last part, the, the last piece of it was dropped in by a helicopter. But you think about this 630 feet apart, right, a couple football fields, you, it's made of steel and stone. If you don't have it perfectly aligned, by the time it gets up there, it's misaligned. You, it's made of steel and stone. You can't just, like, use a crowbar on it. It's massive. So from 630 feet away, those two foundation stones could not be more than one 32nd of an inch misaligned from 630 feet. Had to be perfectly aligned with, that, uh, with each other. We're calling for alignment to Jesus. In his words, in his life, that is the way in which the temple grows. So am I saying that just by simply trying to follow Jesus in our own life and follow his words and his way of life that we're actually participating in what he's doing in the earth? Exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. That's totally it. That's totally it. Alignment with the cornerstone is unto the growing of the temple, right? Each stone in the temple isn't for itself. It's, it's, pick, it's pointing to something much bigger, the temple, but as we work out in our own life, that's why we're, we want to teach from the Bible. That's why we want each other in the, in the Word in your own life. Where our community groups study the Scripture. We want to be aligned with Jesus. And that alignment is participating in what He's doing in the earth. This is it. This is the way Jesus builds His temple. In Him, verse 22, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're not there yet, right? There's a waiting time. There, we're waiting, right? The, the real is shadowed down into the church. We are the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. One day we see in Revelation 21 what happens. That reality and the shadow meet. And when they do, the earth is renewed to former glory and beyond. This is what we have in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, the words God has waited to say forever, the words the church has waited to hear forever and hear the words that one day you will hear, one day I will hear. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That day is not today, but it's coming. We currently are an earthly expression of the heavenly reality that's imperfect, that's incomplete. And you and I both know that we're all part of that incompletion and imperfection. But we live with the hope that we have a foretaste right now of the dwelling of God by his spirit in us and in his individually and corporately. And we look forward to a day where he renews all things. And he is utterly committed to doing it because he's already made peace through the blood of his cross. And he is committed to us now to give us grace day in and day out. Part of the way we receive that grace is we pray with the scripture and we come to the table every single day. This, what's communicated in the table is what Christ has done in his death and his resurrection and his glorious uh, spiritual gift to us to help us go, to help us go, to long for more and to embrace what we have. Um, if you're in Christ, this table is open for you and we want you to come. Now, with a caveat, if you are currently in conflict with a person in the body of Christ and are not seeking re reconciliation, Please first go attempt reconciliation, right? Because why is that? Because what communion declares is you've been reconciled to God. Let's not tell a lie about that by allowing irreconciliation with others, at least attempting to, right? Because it deadens our conscience to what Jesus has actually done. Right? So if you're in Christ and you are not in current conflict with another in the body of Christ or not even, you know, un unaddressed conflict, we want you to come to the table. I'm going to pray and invite you to come. You'll come and get, um, get the elements and bring them back to your seat. Here's how we do it. We'll, we'll approach from the outside, get the elements, and come back through the middle. That, that keeps it going. So go outside and then come back through the middle, and then we'll all take together after you come back to your seats. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, that was a lot, and there was a thousand times more just left on the floor, cutting room floor. We need you. We thank you for what you're doing in your church and the world. We thank you that we get to be part of that, even in our frailty in this little corner of the east side of Indianapolis. Let us love one another well that reflects the reality that the center of the gravity of our life is that you have reconciled us to the Godhead and that we are now free and we are now sons and daughters all the way into the household. In Jesus' name. As you're prepared, I invite you to come and grab the elements and take them back to your seat.